chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, you do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Speaking of the Old Testament, where the law and the prophets summarize, along with the book of Psalms, the Old Testament. Now, in chapter 11 of Luke, we compared even last week with the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, the harmonious passage, because so much of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is in Luke chapter 6 as well. Not the same message, but very similar content. And here in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, given further insight, it's important that we do the same thing tonight. In Luke chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus said this, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks will be open. If a son asks for bread from his father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Luke text is very helpful and insightful because it gives us two additional pieces of information in being synonymous with this text from Matthew 7. We see a third application of how earthly fathers will give good things. So if you ask for an egg, we're not going to give our kid a scorpion, right? So it gives the third analogy of what we wouldn't do in that sense. But in greater emphasis for us tonight, in asking and knocking and seeking, he says in the context of Luke 11, the Holy Spirit. How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to us? Now, it is distinct from what he's saying here in Matthew, but it gives us insight what we should be seeking, knocking, and asking for, because in the same terminologies, he tells us from Luke 11 that it has to do with the Holy Spirit. And everything you do with the Holy Spirit is good. We're told to be spirit-filled women. We're told to be spirit-filled men. We're told to seek out to the things of the Spirit. We're told to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We're told that we have the mind of the Spirit and having the mind of Christ. We're told that God gives gifts of the Spirit for service in the body of Christ. We're told that we're to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Christ in how we carry ourselves. And we're told in a summary of all this that we're to be Spirit-filled, to be filled with the Spirit. It's very helpful in understanding this text tonight because human beings do a lot of asking, seeking, and knocking from God in general. And a reminder, as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is teaching his disciples so what he's teaching here is for followers of Christ, people who have asked Christ into their life, they've received him as their savior, as it says in the Gospel of John chapter 1, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, which Chris was just praying about, not born of flesh, not born of the will of men, not born of blood, but born of God. So that's that born again of being born of the Spirit. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless our man or woman is born again, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can I go back in my mother's womb? Flesh. And Jesus says, that was of the flesh is flesh, that was of the spirit is spirit. 
So we know the Bible clearly teaches that as many as call upon the name of the Lord are saved. Those who confess Christ and receive him are saved. And that's the context here. There's a lot of scripture that's broad for the human experience. Again, when we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, it's very deliberate and absolute for the body of Christ, for people who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. This is about asking and receiving. What are we asking for and what are we receiving? So we have this element of uh, our petitions. Then we also have the element of God's goodness compared to men's goodness. And then we also have a therefore. So we have three elements of this passage tonight. The petitions, comparative of our Heavenly Father to earthly fathers, and then a therefore, what it all really means. So we start with the petitions. We're told to ask, we're told to seek, we're told to knock, and as we compared or brought in Luke chapter 11 to give us insight, it gives us comparative insight on asking, seeking, and knocking. So let's break these three things down, asking. You ask for something, like when you're a kid, you ask your parents, like, hey, mom, dad, can I spend the night at so-and-so's house or whatever? Can I have some money to go here or do that? Can I go to the beach today? You ask. It's a petition, asking for permission or asking for something deliberate. Now, Jesus already taught on prayer back in chapter 6. We know that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And we've talked about that phrase, daily bread, encompasses everything we could possibly ask for in time, space, and matter in the human experience as a disciple of Christ. But here we're back on really prayer and asking. The first book of the New Testament written or recorded for us for the early church, that is the first document that circulated in the early church, was in that primarily Jewish church, because again, the church began in Jerusalem with Jewish people of of ethnicity of being Jewish, because the gospel is to the Jew first, then the nations. And we know that we're as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is that opening up of the gospel to everybody. But in that early church, James... The brother of the Lord, as he's called, wrote the book of James, being led by the Holy Spirit. And twice in his book, so this is the first book that went out in the early churches. People met house to house, ate their bread with simplicity and gladness of heart, and they grew in the apostles' doctrine. The, the, apart from the actual teaching of the apostles to the congregations and the home churches throughout Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and eventually the Gentile nations like Antioch and Syria, The book of James is agreed upon as the first canon or inspired scripture that went out to the churches. So when you got like, oh, here's the letter of James, and it was very authoritative. And there in the very beginning, to count trials uh, uh, a blessing, to strengthen our faith, teach us patience, we get the phrase ask. If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God and he will give it to them. That's insightful because that shows us in the early church, people were asking like, what do we do? They had the Old Testament scriptures. They could study Proverbs and Isaiah and all these books. But as they're trying to live out their Christian life, being persecuted in Jerusalem by their own brethren and then eventually persecuted by Caesar and the Roman government and being wrongly accused. I mean, how would you like to be accused of being cannibals because we have communion tonight? You know how many Christians were burned at the stake because Caesar said that we're cannibals because we partake of the body and blood of Christ? You talk about slander against religious people and their identifying. This right here in front of us tonight. Do you know how many people came before us? Not just in that first century, but even since then, for just keeping the Lord's sacrament that have been slandered and wrongly accused as being evil and being called cannibals. 
for what we're doing tonight in the memory of the Lord. See, the church has been slandered and attacked since the, the dawn of the church, since the day of Pentecost. And the devil seeks to constantly attack us and make us evil in the eyes of society. So society will call good evil, the church, and call evil, the world, good. Isaiah warned about this, and this is clearly the mark of the last days, that that would increase in the last days. So it is noteworthy that that first epistle of the early church, right away James says, look, if anyone lacks wisdom, how to handle the situation with the family gathering, how to handle the situation with your neighbor, how to handle the situation with your boss, your master, or whatever, if anyone lacks wisdom personally within their family, their local church. Let him ask of God, and God will give it liberally. So we see early on, people did lack was like, what's, what do we do? We've been talking about this, going through this book, and I touch on it, I touch on, it on the book of Joshua too, but knowledge is knowing something. You know something. You just, you know something. Knowledge is knowing something. Understanding is knowing what it means, and wisdom is the application of what to do based upon what you know. So you, you know a fact, that's science, then you understand what the best choice is based upon that fact, and, or, or what it means, risk, reward, whatever, and then you have wisdom to choose what's the right decision in that situation. And wisdom will always be consistent with God's character and his heart and his word. Wisdom never is toward evil or darkness or lying or conniving or deceit. Wisdom, there in the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters, you're familiar with them. Time and time again, wisdom's called beautiful. She's glorious, and she shouts out in the streets, and she's in the open. So when Jesus says we should ask, we're told in the book of James, right off the bat to the early church, ask for wisdom to make the right decisions in our lives. And also, but not to be double-minded when we ask. So don't ask with a predetermined idea what you think the answer should be. You ask because you don't know. Like you can know the word of the Lord, but you don't know what the right decision is. If you receive an inheritance, you receive some money, you might say like, well, should we pay off our house? Should we buy another house? Should we pay for the student loans? Like, you, like what should we do? Should we just give it all away in Jesus' name to missions around the world? You, you, you ask, like, Trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. You ask. And here Jesus says to ask, and we will, he'll lead us by his spirit. If we're spirit-filled, we're going to have the mind of Christ. He's going to lead us. We're going to acknowledge him in all of our ways. He's going to direct us. There might be good sense, common sense, and critical thinking at play, but really, ultimately, what is the mind of Christ? And he'll give us wisdom. But let us not be double-minded. So we don't ask the Lord saying, guide my sense, please show us what to do. And he shows you what you do and you don't like it. And then you don't do it. That's, that's no good. That's what James warns about. You're like a, a wave in the open ocean, crossed up, tossed to and fro. When we ask for wisdom, we need to be willing to obey what God shows us. And not be double-minded. Because God's not yes and no. He's yes, yes, or no, no. But it's not yes and no. So we're told to ask, the first letter of the early church circulating right away deals with asking God for wisdom on what are the right things to do in our life, but don't ask double-minded or like a crossed-up swell that's just misfiring and not on the same cadence. And by the way, 
for what it's worth, that's when the ocean's extremely treacherous because you have these different rips because you've got ocean energy coming from thousands of miles in different directions and it's not in harmony. That's what our life looks like when we ask for wisdom and we're not willing to obey what God shows us to do. Also in the book of James, later on, he says, you know, there's another thing about asking. He goes, some of you are asking, but you're asking for the wrong things. You ask amiss. Remember that one? James chapter 4. He says, you have not because you ask not, (laughs) because you ask amiss. Now, that doesn't really seem like worship generation in our DNA. That's not really how we are in our worldview with Christ. But it's worth noting, because again, it's the idea of asking for the wrong things. Which takes us back to Luke 11. The safety net of asking God for direction and confirmation is when we're asking for things consistent with the Spirit of God, consistent with the character of God, the promises of God, and the kingdom of God. That's the beautiful combo swell. But when we ask and we don't mean business and we're just going to do what we want to do and we're just sort of putting an asterisk disclaimer on it, we ask amiss and we don't get the answer and our lives become like a wild washing machine of swells in different directions with rips going in all these different directions and it's not good. And that's the visual the Holy Spirit gives us. That's not Joey telling a surf story. That's the visual that the Holy Spirit gives us in James chapter 1. So asking, ask with sincerity, ask with the mind of Christ, ask to be led of the Lord, and ask to be in a spiritual mindset of the wisdom and decisions we need to make. Also, he says to seek. Well, we're asking because we're seeking. We're seeking clarity or something. It's pretty similar to asking for wisdom, but we're seeking. So we're asking for something, but we're seeking. And we already saw back in chapter 6 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the things that we can concern ourselves with, which are many things on a, a good day and maybe even many more on a difficult day, we seek first the kingdom and these things shall be added unto us. So in the seeking, we're seeking first the kingdom of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Yours is the kingdom, you and the power and the glory forever. So we're seeking the kingdom. We're asking we see early on there in the early church with the book of James, we're asking for wisdom and guidance and decision-making, but we're seeking the kingdom. We're truly seeking the kingdom. God's heart, God's character, God's will. Your, his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the right thinking. And remember, with the Father of light, there's no shadow of turning. Jesus constantly talked about all things are open and bare and naked before him to whom we must all give an account and we'll give an account for every other word. Jesus never did things in secret. He said, I am the light of the world and he said the church is the light of the world. So when people do things in secret, believers or non-believers, that's not consistent with the kingdom. That's not consistent with the Father. And by the way, nor is it consistent with science because science is the absolute truth. Science never changes. The laws of science physically never change in that sense. The idea of science is you can prove something time and time again and it'll always be true. Which is why Darwinism is not science and creation is science. Because all that you can prove confirms a young earth, a six-day creation, and created with purpose. And all this nonsense of the monkey business that poisons people's minds and gives them excuses 
to enslave millions and murder millions innocently is monkey business of deranged, demonically deceived, delusional people. From Marx to Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Hitler, and all those people like that. They embrace faulty science to justify what they do in their crimes against humanity in subjugation of people, in totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Jesus does nothing in secret in the dark. So when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, we're seeking things that are transparent and open before us and our hearts before God and the people around us in the human experience. Then we're told to knock. So I like this one because this is a, a knock on a door. Like people knock on your door, you knock on the door. We say, you know, break down the door or bust down the door or whatever, a soft wrap, whatever. But knock. Jesus says to knock. Jesus is saying knock on the door. Now, on this one, we get a little more insight because in Revelation, because so the knocking refers to a door. And in the book of Revelation to the church of Philadelphia, the seven churches of, of Asia, in modern Turkey, and the church of Revelation, the one, there's two churches of the seven that get no reproof, and one of them was the church of Philadelphia. And he says, I open a door before you that no man can close, and I close a door that no man can open. Growing up in the Calvary movement as a pastor, this was often through Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck and others, the idea that of the great missionary movement that came about in the 1800s and the advancement of the gospel on a worldwide level, like unprecedented in human history between like 1800 to pretty much like 1980-ish and even currently, but it's called the Great Missionary Awakening where you used to have all these state churches associated with monarchs and kings and queens and a state church that went along with them. And when Europe broke free from that, beginning with like the Moravian Germans as they went to the Caribbean and shared the gospel and all these things, and as the New World opened up, even our own colonies, hundreds of years before the Continental Congress and becoming a nation, many people came and the gospel went forth. And so the Church of Philadelphia is often associated, if these churches represent historical timeline, of the Great Awakening Movement of the gospel going out worldwide. So no longer, like, for example, in India or China, the underground churches or the churches that are persecuted in India and Vietnam and these other places, no longer they're like state churches, like Hitler's Lutheran Church or, or Luther's Lutheran Church or Queen Mary's, well, she was Catholic, but, or John Knott's John Scottish Church, the Presbyterians, like all those churches of that time, or the Russian Orthodox Church with Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, these were churches associated with nationalities and national identities. And they're, so for example, like when Catherine the Great, okay, Catherine the Great's like 1720 to 1780, she's Prussian, she's German, and they needed a wife for Peter the Great's grandson, so they auditioned all the different brides and whatnot, and she's a low-level duchess, but they brought her in, and she ended up becoming the wife of the grandson of Peter the Great, who she later had killed, uh, but that's a different story. But she was Prussian, and one of the challenges for her becoming the queen, future queen of Russia is to convert from Lutheranism to Russian Orthodox. And in all those intermarrying monarchs that Queen Victoria, even with William III and all the Louis the Sun King, all those different European kings, the Spaniards, all, as they, in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, they would 
solidify like a game of Monopoly their, their strength and you would marry into a state church and the biggest challenge always was you would convert. So if you're a Polish queen and you're becoming a Russian queen, which did happen, you would be going from Catholicism, which was huge, to, to Russian Orthodox. So the identity of the churches were national churches, which makes the United States so great. Because freedom of religion is one, the number one tenet of our foundation, along with personal freedoms. Freedom of religion. There's no state church. The separation of church and state has nothing to do with that the church doesn't influence the state. It has to do with the state doesn't control the church. That's what the founding fathers had in mind with that concept. Most of you know that. So Maryland was primarily a Catholic region. Pennsylvania, primarily Baptists, Anabaptists, Quakers, Mennonites. Georgia in that area became the Methodist because of Wesley and their work as they came over Anglicans and it became Methodism. And the rest is church history. This makes us such a great country. We don't have a history of a state church. We have a history of many diverse churches and the unique flavors of, of Christianity in our country are amazing. And our influence to go out into the world is amazing. So again, now when you think of the underground church in, in uh, China, they're, they could be Baptist, Methodist, or anything, but you know, the state church is communist, right? So the communist church, you young people need to understand this, what the communists do. They take over your religion. They let you keep your building, but you capitulate your truth for them. So right now, the CCP, the Communist China part, Chinese Communist Party, they control all the state churches, the three front patriot churches, as they're called, in China. Now, 100 years ago, that was a, a pretty good idea the Three Front Patriot Movement, but then it became controlled by the communists in, during the revolution, the communist revolution in China in the 60s and 70s. So now there's 13 seminaries in China, and they're all controlled by the Communist Party. They control everything that's taught, that can be taught to go out, and they control all the state churches, and that's why they persecute all the underground churches, because they're not controlled and bowing the knee to Caesar of communism, who rejects Christ in his reject the whole existence of Christ, and so they're free to be who they are, but they're radically persecuted. But they're not controlled by the CCP, and that's why the Communist Party enslaves them, plus the Muslims, and they have the hundreds of thousands of Chinese in concentration camps right now in China because of this. This is how that works when Caesar's God over Jesus, or you have a state church. So when we read about the church of Philadelphia and Jesus says there's a door open to you, it takes us to Matthew 28 where he says, I'm the final authority. Jesus says, I am the final authority. That means any other authority is secondary to that authority theologically. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things I've taught you, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. That is the door that Jesus opens up to us, the door of the great commission, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and the making of disciples through the teaching of his word from Genesis to Revelation, which, of course, is the history of the fruitful church and the history of the Calvary Chapel movement, is the whole counsel of God. So when we seek, knock, and ask, and we seek, ask, and knock, and we're knocking, we're knocking for an open door. We're joining others in the door that God has opened before us in church history. It's not a door controlled by Caesar or state churches or kings and queens. It's a door that Jesus 
who is over a trillion galaxies in our universe, is opening to us on planet Earth. That's the Great Commission. And as my in-law, Jim Gallagher, said to me in my kitchen table this week, our purpose and our function does not change ever based upon who's calling the shots with Caesar. The church's place to exist and the church's purpose to exist never changes. So if we're an underground church in China or we're an above-ground church in America or flip-flop that, whatever, we're always going to be the church. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That's what the seven churches of Revelation are all about. That's the reality of the New Testament canon of Scripture. So as disciples, as we're asking and seeking and knocking, we're looking for an open door. Now, the funny thing about open doors is Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians in the end of his first letter, he said, a great and effective door has been opened to me. Well, that's awesome. Don't we all love a great and effective and open door? It's not a business plan. It's not a a market scheme. It's the advancement of the gospel. All authority. The Great Commission. A great and effective door has been opened to me. But you know the the rest of that verse I don't like. Some of you know the rest of that verse, right? There are many adversaries. I don't like that part of the verse. A great and effective open door has been made to me, but there are many adversaries. I don't like adversaries. I don't think you do either. I prefer to have no adversaries. I would prefer... Thessalonians to just mind your own business, live a quiet, peaceful life, and and not have problems. But that's very rare in the human experience. Human history is 6,000 years of people trying to mind their own business, being overrun by people who impose their business and their will on them. When I watched the movie on the Ukrainian famines of of the 1920s when Stalin sent all of his people down to Ukraine, you know, Ukrainians basically hate Russians. You didn't know that. Growing up in our timeline, they were just the Soviet Union. So if an Ukrainian wins a gold medal in the 1972 Olympics, it's just a Russian. They're communists. They're bad people in my mind, right? But they're Ukrainians competing for Russia, but they hate Russians. Because the Russians, for, thousands, for hundreds of years, over a thousand years, have constantly gone into Ukraine, the breadbasket of the world, along with the Mongols and the Poles and the Turks and other people, and they take all their food. And Stalin went into Ukraine in the 20s and took all the food in his collective plan, and he took all the food from people who did work and gave it to people who didn't work, and it's considered the largest genocide in human history, what Stalin did to the Ukrainian people. Tens of millions of people died to death, died from starvation during the Ukrainian famines imposed by Stalin when he seized their personal properties and did that to them. We're not takers. Jesus is not about taking. God so loved the world, he gave his son. But human beings are takers. And you can't get past kindergarten and not figure out there's givers and takers. And that's why I say givers give and keep on giving because they're always willing to keep on forgiving. Takers take. It's never enough, even when they've taken almost all your stuff. And you have to decide which one you are. And you can't let takers pull you out of your lane to become like them. That's why Paul said, having done all, stand. He didn't say become a taker. He said, just do all and stand. You can't let evil people make you become evil. You just you, you can't let people pull you out of the good lane that's in Christ Jesus. So when we're asking, we're seeking, and we're knocking, we are, we are essentially asking, seeking, and knocking for the Holy Spirit and the glorious things of the kingdom and the good things of the gospel and the good things of the church and the legacy of the church and our timeline in the church and that we can fulfill the good things that God has for us as the church. And that's a wonderful prayer. 
That's, those are wonderful petitions, and those are things that God will honor always. The character of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, and the good things of the coming kingdom. We have every promise in Christ Jesus. So as we're asking, seeking, and knocking, whether there's many adversaries, there's always adversaries when you're living for Jesus. We just keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, keep going forward in the promises of God. Now, we also see God's goodness, and we need to be reminded of this because we often forget God's goodness. Sometimes we think that God is against us and when it doesn't seem to go your way. Or as the psalmist said, I would have lost heart because evil prevails until I went in the sanctuary and then I was reminded of the end of the wicked, that there's no good end to them. The book of Proverbs warns time and time again not to look at the wicked and be envious because their end is swift and final. But to live for righteousness, to make righteous decisions and good decisions, and they will always bear out. They will always bear out. Our nature, essentially, human nature, we know from Romans 3.23, is that we're sinful. And we do tend to be driven by self-interest. It's hard for us to lose our life and surrender our life. But Jesus said that the servant of all is first in the kingdom. Recently, I was reviewing someone's letter that they're writing to their superior, and they said, as a slave of Jesus Christ. And I said, I understand what you mean by that, but in the light of the submission of this letter, you probably want to put as a servant of Jesus Christ. Because they might use this against you as being a religious fanatic, to use the term slave, because in America, most people don't like that term at all for obvious reasons. And that you would use the term slave favorably would be really hard for most people cognizantly to understand, especially if they're not born again, right? And I said, the last thing I said is, but know this, I know what you mean by being a slave of Jesus, because we are slaves of Jesus, because the New Testament tells that. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. As much as like, hey, I prefer servant. How about servant? Servant's sort of like, well, I can choose to do the dishes or I can watch the football game. And I'll do the dishes at halftime. I like servant. It's a softer landing. Greatest in the kingdom is servant all. No, it really means slave. It means bond slave. It means like you are a slave in Rome and you're shackled and you got no choice in it. But we're not shackled to Caesar. We're shackled to Jesus. And he's a good, good father. But I, when I wrote that, I said, look, just so you know, I understand theologically what you mean here. Because you are correct. You are a slave of Jesus. And because you're conscious on that, this is what you're communicating but I would still put servant because that's, that's probably going to go over a little better than saying slave in this context. But you are a slave of Jesus, as am I. And we learn that God is good. But because we're servants, we have to trust the Lord. And you have to trust the Lord sometimes when things don't go well. Like, you ever said, how is this going to work together for good? I mean, the longer you live for the Lord, the more like, now how is this going to work together for good? But if I really believe Romans 8, 28, that all things do work together for good, then somehow, well, what you learn early on with this is that all things working together for good doesn't necessarily mean the payoff is in time, space, and matter. All things working together for good, you may not see it in time, space, and matter. But I promise you, by the blood of Christ, you will see it in eternity. 
You will see it in eternity that all things, injustices and evils and perpetrations of evil men on good women and good men, work together for good for your glory in all eternity. But sometimes it's hard to think of God being our Heavenly Father or a good, good Father when it seems like this is not going really good. When it's so obvious what justice is in a court case and justice would be correct this way and you don't get justice, you get injustice. Or all the people vote a majority this way and judges don't do it anyways because that's what they do. It is frustrating when people think they're above the law. They don't obey the law, they make their own laws and then they force them on us, and then, then we have to trust that people who are in place to uphold the law prove that the law is valid at a later time. But there's no injustice in time, space, and matter against you or against me or against anybody that's not made straight and working together for good for disciples of Jesus Christ in all eternity. And there's no injustice even against non-believers. Let me say this. Let's say you're a Ukrainian farmer. They took your stuff. You fought the Soviets, and they killed you, and you weren't born again. You might not be in heaven, but you can be sure that the injustice of what Stalin's goons did will be made straight before the throne of God. That injustice will still be made justice in eternity. Because our Father of Lights, who owns a trillion galaxies, is not going to let any injustice exist in the new heaven and the new earth. It's inconsistent with his character. He's a good father. So when you earthly fathers, your son asks for bread, you don't give him a stone. And isn't it interesting that Jesus uses that term here? Because what happened to Jesus when he was fasting? What did the devil tempt him with? Did you catch that? When Jesus was starving, the devil came to him and said, if you're really the son of God, turn this rock to bread. And here Jesus says, Our, your heavenly father is a good father. And if you ask for bread, he's going to give you a rock. Isn't that interesting? He's using the rock and the bread. I'm not sure. I don't fully have my mind wrapped around what it means. It's the same things. It's the two elements, the rock and the bread. There's something there. If you give epiphany in the middle of the night this week, come tell me what it is. But the rock and the bread. And then this, from Luke's account, the scorpion and the egg. Like, you know, hey, when Zippy comes over to the grandkids, she loves my scrambled eggs. I make scrambled eggs a certain way. She wants Papa scrambled eggs, so I'm making them. What if I just pulled out a scorpion? Here, Zippy, have a scorpion. Like, I would never do that. I love my granddaughter right? That's repulsive. I've only seen one scorpion in my life. It was in Peru, and it scared the daylights out of me. I was at a bed and breakfast at uh, Pico Alto, the big wave spot, and we're at breakfast. All of a sudden, there's like, there's a a big scorpion. It's like, I've never seen a scorpion. (laughs) You know, and I guess only one in 10 types was actually poisonous, but I don't care. It's probably that one in the 10. I'm not an insect person, and Jesus compared that even the worst earthly father is going to give their child not going to give them a scorpion when they ask for eggs. Do we understand that? Or a fish for a serpent. Hey, how about some fresh halibut? How about some, you know, how about some wahoos, fish tacos? Then all of a sudden you pull out a snake. Here, have some snake. It's like, you would never do that. It's repulsive. It's like, who would ever do that? What kind of a parent, like, what kind of demented parent would do that? If you want some python? Like, it's just, it's, so Jesus, this is not me, this is Jesus. These are not my examples. These are his. To bring home a point. If evil people can do that good, and we trust evil people to do good, don't we? Like, every elected official, we're trusting to do good. And they all have a sinful nature. Every pastor and pastor's wife, we're trusting to do good, and we have a sinful nature. 
Every deacon and deacon's wife have a sinful nature, and we're trusting them to do good in serving the church. Every children's ministry teacher, youth pastor, has a sinful nature, and we're trusting them to do good. We're trusting that the Spirit will reign over the flesh. When we go to a doctor, we're trusting that they will do good versus evil. When we are pulled over by the police, we're trusting that they will do good over evil. But we don't have to trust that way with our Heavenly Father, because He cannot do evil. It is impossible for God to lie. God is good all the time. And David said, taste and see that the Lord is good because the Lord is good and God only does good. So when we're asking and we're seeking and we're knocking, we can know that the answers to our petitions are for good, only good in our life because God is good and only does good. It's for good. And we know that his character is good. And there's no turning from the Father, the shadow of lights. God is good all the time. He's always good. Everything God does is good. And if he says something's good, it's good. If he says something's evil, it's evil. Because he knows good and evil. He gave us a tree of life for good, and he gave us a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So when we choose to sin, we really know what evil looks like, and that's unfortunate. And I think I speak for most of us in this room. We know more evil than we'd ever want to know. If I could avoid knowing any more evil than I already know, that'd be great for me from here to eternity. And we would say yes and amen. But realities are realities. So we're, seek, we're asking, seeking, and knocking. We know that God is good compared to humanity, even good humanity. Our Father who's in heaven, he gives good things to those who ask. So what he's going to do is good because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose and being conformed to the express image of his Son. And then he has the therefore. So verse 12, therefore, okay, you're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking, and God is good, therefore, This therefore is interesting. Look what it says. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's interesting. So all this is vertical. Asking, seeking, knocking is vertical. You and the Lord, us and the Lord. And trusting the one we're seeking, asking, and knocking, because God is good. He doesn't give us stone when we ask for bread. He doesn't give us a scorpion when we ask for an egg. He doesn't give us a snake. When we ask for fish, God is good. He's better than earthly fathers who would do good and do bad. So what's it all mean? It's horizontal. So this vertical God, it's horizontal. It's the most basic application. So since you're asking, seeking, and knocking, and God only does good, then do good for others. What are the most basic goods that God defines? I'll tell you the most basic good. This is really important. It's self-determination. Free will of the individual is the most basic good that God gives humanity. He gives us all a choice. Because they're in the Garden of Eden, where they had a stewardship, love has a choice. This is the fundamental principle of God's character and the human experience, and even our constitution, by the way, is the individual rights. Those individual rights of the Constitution are based upon the biblical right that we are self-determined entities creating God's image to choose good, the tree of life, or to choose evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
We are self-determined. We're not robots. We're not artificial intelligence. So the most basic thing that our good father gives us is choice. Self-determination for choices in our life. And if we sow to the spirit, we reap life. If we sow to the flesh, we reap death. If we show mercy, we get mercy. If we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. If we sow sparingly, we get sparingly. That is the universe that God made. We respect individual rights. This is the problem, like, for example, with communist China. Because they don't respect individual rights. Communism never respects individual rights. The rights of the state. When Luke shared his faith with many Chinese people, our son, who is fluent in Mandarin, has read of Chinese communism. He read the biography of Mao Zedong in Mandarin. He can discuss political things of communism with Chinese students in Mandarin. And Randy Crosco, the former deacon, explained this to me, that what Mao Zedong did is he took an alphabet of 6,000 plus characters in the Chinese language and reduced it to 600. And those characters all represent ideas and thoughts and ideologies. And he simplified the alphabet for the common people. And in doing so, he eliminated concepts and thoughts, mainly personal freedom and self-determination. So when Luke, my son, would be sharing with being an American, what it means is that you have a choice and you have individual rights of self-determination. He never spoke with one Chinese student going to OCC or anywhere else or through online chat rooms with Chinese students who even could begin to understand the concept of self-determination and individual choices and rights. Because they've all been raised under a state that suppresses those rights and they're not even cognitively in their mindset. We're watching people take our individual rights. They've never had them and have no concept of it. That's what a godless atheistic, communist, Darwinistic worldview gets. It gets people dumbed down who cannot think with common sense, let alone critically, and to understand the concepts that God gives us created his image with purpose of choice and self-determination on planet Earth. And what tyrants and authoritarians do is they suppress those rights of individual rights and free thought and the marketplace of thought, and they cancel it so you're just part of the state party line. And therefore, when you're Luke talking with the communist students and you even talk about parental rights, there are no parental rights. See, if you don't have the concept of personal rights, you don't have the concept of parental rights. So none of his friends or his students, the kids are raised by the state, an, an atheistic state that controls the church, the Patriot Three Front Church. So no one grows up with parents that teach them right and wrong. The state is right. There's no moral values in the family. There's no parental rights to raise your children unto Christ. In fact, Stalin made it against the law to raise any children to Christ. Stalin, because totalitarians absolutely reject any competition for the marketplace of thoughts. Stalin executed 106,000 clergy in the early 20s. 106,000 clergy. And then he executed another 140,000 in the 30s. And they forbid any individual to exercise their parental rights to raise their children unto believing in Christ. So they went from a state church under the czar just 30 years before, where they're all very religious, you know, like that kind of religious, to your neighbor snitches on you because you have an icon on your wall and you get sent to the gulags in Siberia. That's what these people do with their worldviews that are antichrist and godless. 
That's ultimately where it goes. All of them. All of them. They hitch their yoke to the worldview that rejects Christ and the existence. Because once you reject Christ and accountability to his throne, you can do whatever you want. That's what they do. And that's what they're doing globally right now. We all understand that. We know that. And even in our own country, we understand that. But know this. The greatest right that Jesus Christ gives every one of us is self-determination. To receive Christ or to reject Christ. To truly be his disciple or not be his disciple. To stand for Christ or to deny Christ. And why would he warn us about denying Christ if it wasn't possible? Matthew 10. And why would he say, don't fear the one who can take your life from you, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong. Fear the one who's over it all who can cast your soul in hell, me. So we don't fear men, we fear God. And we respect all people, and we respect their individual rights. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone, control anyone, or force anything upon anybody, and nor should you. No one likes a bully, so don't bully anybody. Aretha Franklin said all she wanted was respect. And respect is respecting other people's space and their personal God-given rights. That is biblical. So if my neighbor chooses to do this with their life, their time, and their space, that's their business. Unless, of course, their business is imposed on me against my God-given business, then now it's my business. You see, our founding fathers understood this. This is the very essence of our Constitution and what it was all about in establishing the greatest nation in human history, individual freedoms. But those individual freedoms constitutionally come from the individual freedom from the throne room of God. So my confidence or my authority is not based upon what the founding fathers said or did. My confidence and my authority is based upon what Jesus Christ did and who he is and what he says and what he's revealed. So when we're going to do for our neighbor what we want our neighbor to do for ourselves is we're going to respect their choices with their life decisions, their finances, their body, their relationships and those things. And I respect that. I might disagree with some things, but I'm not going to impose something upon them. For whatever you want men to do to you, do to them also. I want to encourage people. I want to love people. And I want you to exercise your rights as you believe they are with the Lord to encourage people, to build them up, respect them, give them space, and love them and encourage them in their journey. That's what I want to do. I'm not trying to take anything from anybody. I'm trying to build people up. And I'm going to follow the king who walks in light, who is the father of lights and has no shadow of turning. And I am going to test all things, and I'm going to be skeptical of people who walk in deceit, manipulate, bully, and intimidate people. There's a reason you didn't trust those people in sixth grade, and there's a reason you don't trust them when you're 60. And keep an eye on them. And as much as I can, I'm going to respect them and the authority God's given them, just like I respect the police officer, the White House, the Supreme Court, and the Congress. And when I go to Russia, I respect Putin. Because he's there by the will of the people. If he's not, he's still the czar. So either way, that's the government. I respect Caesar. But I bow to knee to Jesus. And I'm not trying to force anything on anybody. And I'm trying to have wisdom like everybody else day to day in our world right now. And I do really respect people to make their decisions how they feel best for their personal lives. 
but because of the free will and self-determination Jesus Christ gives every human being from the point of conception in the womb, I do believe it's my right to speak up and stand for my rights as God-given rights, not from the Constitution, but from the Savior who shed his blood. And if I choose to lay down those rights for humanity, that's my choice, but that's not going to be forced on me by Stalin, Hitler, Caesar, or Mao Zedong. Do you understand? So in seeking, in asking, seeking, and knocking, I am wanting to have the mind of Christ, and I know that God is good, and you know that God is good. And we're going to love people, we're going to build them up, we're going to respect them, and we're going to encourage them, because that's what followers of Christ do. Anything that goes beyond that, where people are, are coming to take away those things God has given, we must each decide how we handle those things between us and the Lord. And we're hardly alone, because pretty much every generation of the church has had to make those tough decisions. I can't imagine being a Christian farmer in the Ukraine in 1925, when Stalin's guys showed up and took the farm from me and my family, they've been in my family for hundreds of years. I have no idea how they handled that or how I would have handled that. But God will guide us because there's always good people that do the right thing for other people. And you know who those people are? They're the church of Jesus Christ. So God just guide us in what we're seeking, asking, and knocking, and going for, and to bring Christ and God-ordained freedoms to those marketplace of thought and to those people with humility and even as slaves of Jesus Christ as we each are convinced in our own conscience before the Lord following the word of God. Amen.